We see it so many times with people who, you know, all of a sudden at the very end of life, you'll have a rush of family come in because they haven't seen this person for so long. So it's just like the appreciation for life and who is in your life, making sure the relationships that you have are strong, like not waiting to say I love you to someone, you know, not waiting to give them flowers until later. Like it's just, it's kind of enriched the relationships around me um, just to be more, just stronger. Mm -hmm. So I thought this would be a real, a real interesting conversation because I find that in that in a in a world where you, where you go to every day and work every day, there's end of life going on, yeah, constantly, and that's a big part of your life is end of life. And I was like, what what an interesting perspective it would be to see like what your you know what your gains are on life itself after seeing end of life so much and seeing it not only through your own eyes but often seeing it through the eyes of the people that come in there as well because those people come in there and you're you're seeing their perspectives right you're observing all the time um and i know when we first talked and we first met you had like such a cool like history of you know all the time you spent out in Africa and doing what you did out there. And it's, yeah, I thought it would be an interesting conversation about like what people pursue, what, what the pursuits of life are and what matters most to, to people. So yeah, I thought it would be cool to just have you here and chat with Trina and I on, on perspective. What do you think? Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys for having us here yeah. today. We're very excited. A little nervous. Yeah. Very excited. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I mean, even uh, even when I first, you know, sat and met with you guys and the first times we talked, um, I didn't know what a hospice was. Um, I knew hospice, hospital, okay, um, palliative maybe, you know, but what's the difference and, you know, why a, why a hospice, you know? So um, maybe you can like just start like, do you, do you ever hear this part before or you must know? Well, I've worked with, not with this hospice, but I've worked a lot with um, different ones, more so in Brampton. Okay. And then we, we just would engage, like, the whole family. we get the whole family involved in things before um, the end of, like, before the death occurred and after the death. So right. there was just a real, that was my experience with it. Right. Certain ones in so when, Brampton. So when you were planning your career out, right, you said, I'm going to go work in a... <laughs> no, no, right. <laughs> no one ever really aspire thinks that. Yeah. What were your aspirations when you were starting out in your? I think for for nursing, like I went into it because it wasn't going to be very long. So I did like practical nursing because um, I didn't. You don't know what you want to do. Like no clue. no clue. Out of high school, I have to pick something. Okay. To pick something that was completely not what I wanted it to be. And then worked, and then I was like, well, my, my mom's a nurse, my grandmother's a nurse. I'm like, well, let's give this a try. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it was two years, like, practical nursing program, and I loved it, and I was good at it. What makes you good at nursing? What makes a person good at nursing? I think just having that personality to, you know, engage with others and help others, um, and you get fulfillment out of that right like you go to work and you feel like you've accomplished something you've done something well um and you're very yeah. passionate <laughs> yeah so it's just 
you know, you even though like you're giving a lot of yourself, you're still getting a lot for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the circle with being service to others, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've had a similar sort of pathway, like through life as well, going out there and service to humanity and all the work that you've done. What kind of led you into the world of of hospice, Michelle? Well, I guess nursing as a whole, I graduated university or first took something else in university, environmental science, and that just didn't work out. Oh, wow. I see the path. But then I had a volunteer experience in Kenya, uh, and it made me realize how fortunate we happen to be in North America for the health services that we actually receive and have access to. And so it was a goal of mine to be a nurse. Uh, And actually, I look back at like a little book that I wrote when I was little, like nursing was one of the top 10, you know, professions that I had potentially wanted to be. But anyway, went into nursing and, um, you know, after your Kenya trip, after Kenya trip, went back to school, went through university, became a nurse, worked downtown Toronto. And then my goal of being a nurse was to go back and serve in Kenya. And so I did that for about 15 years. Uh, But when I moved back to Canada in 2019, um, I knew Hill House and I knew Hill House Hospice was the right place for me because, um, you know, when you do something that you, it's almost like your body fills with liquid gold and it just, you know, it's the right thing to mm-hmm. do, whether it's a running rush, whether it's like spending time with your kids or I drove past Hill House and I was like, that's the belt. That's the place where I am Seriously, supposed to be. Wow. It was, I mean, during the interview process. And I was yeah. like, oh, I should you like, go see the place. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like that feeling. And I get that feeling like almost mm-hmm. every day. Like it's such a, I mean, it's end of life and it's death. But it's it's so much more about actually a celebration of life every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like we, <clears throat> uh, it's, it's funny you say that the way you just said it. Because when... Typically, you hear about hospice. It's like you know, think about that's where you go and life ends. Um, life, they we we live in a I think maybe a world or maybe it's the way I've seen it for so long has been, you know, life is what you celebrate, right? And while you're living it, um, and to to for a lot of people to talk about what happens end of life and there's so many you know questions that people talk about, right? When you when you started thinking about moving into working in a hospice. What were like the first maybe challenges you noticed that a hospice has to deal with on a on a regular basis? I think like so for myself, I worked in the community before I went. It was a kind of a smooth transition into oh. working at Hill House. I did it as like a casual thing that on my days off from my regular job, I would go to Hill House because it was fun. Um, we laugh every day. Um, you know, there are sad parts to it, yes, but we, like, find joy in everything that we do. Um, a huge part of it is because you have that constant reminder that life is finite. Like, yeah. there is an end, and it's something that we don't talk about. But when you're reminded of that every single day, the way you live is more to appreciate life in itself so it's a constant reminder to kind of like live the way you want to live and find joy in doing the things you want to do um i think that like for myself it really helped me as like to decide to like say no to things like why why am i putting myself through this if i don't want to do this like that's a huge thing (laughs) yeah (laughs) it it could even be as simple as like you know 
feeling obligated to go to some kind of function or something like that and just be like i am i i don't want to do this so why am i making myself do this because it's not happy for me it's not going to bring me joy and if i don't do it it's it's okay Mm -hmm. and i feel so much better like speaking out as in saying no because i always had a hard time saying no it was always like sure i'll do i'll be there i'll do whatever and then it was more I need to take time for myself and I need to find out what I want to do Mm -hmm. and choose the way I want to live. I think that's such an important piece of what made me think about is like, I remember talking to people about um, just their style within conflict, right? And, And there's this little access and the people in the middle are the accommodators. So they're not really assertive, but they're, they're highly cooperative too. But they're always accommodating other people, and like, and what I'm mm-hmm. hearing is like putting someone else's expect what their expectations are of you are, or yeah. just always Especially kind of you're compassionate to be yeah, <laughs> and hustling yourself to meet everyone's needs of you, whether it be social or like taking care of them or whatever it is. And oftentimes, the accommodators are so depleted because then they never get their needs met at the end of the day. So I think that's such a powerful thing to bring forward because it's something all of us probably slide into at times is um, is not being true to ourselves and what mm-hmm. we're looking for, right? And just accommodating and it depletes. So like what happened for you when you started to put like boundaries in place for yourself more and not be like in, and say no to things. You said you say no and you'd feel better, but yeah. how did that momentum increase? It was great from the very first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. It, well, it is uncomfortable, especially when like you're around people where you always said yes to everything. And, and people's reaction to yeah. doing that too. Yeah. Right? I took a step back because I was one to volunteer a ton. And when you take a step back, like sometimes they don't really believe you. Right. You're like you, they still ask you to help out with things. Um, I was involved like in a youth program and, you know, I, I said, I couldn't do this. At the time, I was going back to school to get my RN. I was working full time. I'm like, this is too much to handle. And even after that conversation, it was like a week later getting a phone call. Hey, can you help out with this? <laughs> and so, yeah, like it was heartbreaking at first because I'm like, I'm letting all these people down. But if I don't take care of myself, then I'm not going to be any have like there's going to be no benefit for me to be there yeah. because I won't be there like mentally and spiritually. Like I wouldn't be there. Um, and you attribute this to something you've learned after working. Yeah. Oh, explain that. Help me understand it. I think it's just when you like in society, we don't like talk about death or the fact that we don't, we're not immortal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is an end to this life and, I think it's just a constant reminder that, you know, we see it so many times with people who, you know, all of a sudden at the very end of life, you'll have a rush of family come in because they haven't seen this person for so long. Um, So it's just like the appreciation for life and who is in your life, Um, making sure the relationships that you have are strong, like not waiting to, you know, say I love you to someone, you know, not waiting to give them flowers until later. Like it's just, it's kind of enrich the relationships around me um, just to be more, just stronger. Mm -hmm. Cause it's a constant reminder. 
So what then, what drew, what drew you, Michelle? Uh, you said you you had interviews and you mm. you said this is where you belong. What what aligned so much for you uh, with a, with a hospice of all faces? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, I always joke. I said that's one in Kenya. Oh. If you spend more time in Kenya than I, <laughs> um, that's too funny. <laughs> she knows my work. Kenyan, yeah, <laughs> like the back of my hand. Yeah, yeah. City. <laughs> love those roundabouts there. Um, <laughs> no. Um, well, I think, and in Kenya, like the elderly are so revered, right? It's not yeah. the elderly, but it's the elders. And they are who we turn to for wisdom, who we turn to for conflict resolution, who we turn to for so much guidance. Uh, and so to see how I feel like a little bit in North American society, we don't really um, take care of our elders as mm -hmm. much as we should. Hmm. Like just in terms of we were talk actually uh -huh. just talking up there and we talk all the time about it, but <laughs> sure. oh my gosh, how can uh, you know, seen care for seniors, end of life care be less funded than when somebody's brought into the world? Like mm -hmm. how are we less important right. as a human being when we're dying, when we're experiencing end of life than when we're first brought into this world? Um, and uh, I guess I'm not really answering the question, but uh, it's those moments, right? Like yeah. that you talk about, about um, it's life is built and created on so many small, beautiful moments that happen every single day. And I think that's what hospice really brings to me is that, you know, one of our residents, she got her nails painted mm -hmm. red today or something. And that's just the most amazing thing. Or we're able to hear a story or we're able to like dance the chicken dance with them as mm -hmm. our music therapist mm -hmm. is there and just finding beauty and joy and in those moment. small moments. Like you do it like yesterday was beautiful <laughs> outside, like being outside and experiencing the sun. And yeah, like that's awesome. So yeah. or even I find sometimes, too, I know when I work with people that were were dying is just laughing sometimes it's some yeah. of the most horrific things yeah. that are happening <laughs> to you because like you can lose a lot of dignity when you're dying right you can lose a lot of dignity and it's it's a very chaotic path for some people but i found when you have the capacity to be like laugh at that and and it just brings this energy to it and people people are like how can you guys laugh at that but it's like this is life this is life this is part of it and and it's okay to not always be sad because there is laughter in it and there is funny moments but then you can cry two mm -hmm. seconds after you laugh or laugh too because it's actually the same spectrum laughing and crying mm -hmm. right so um that's what i always loved about that is those just those moments where things are like really hard and you're like we still have the capacity to laugh yeah when it's so dark right yeah kind of find like humor and joy and little things yeah. and and i find too the residents that we work with like they they want to talk about it. Yes. They, like they are okay mm. with, but a lot of the times they don't talk about it because no one has brought it up to them, or n like someone else is not comfortable talking about it. But a lot of people who are dying, they, you know, there are things that they want to talk about. They yeah. might be fearful of some things. They might be, you know, having a lot of these emotions. But everyone's kind of nervous of what to say right. or like how to say it or what do you even do. I'm like, this is the same person that you have known your whole life but why can't you talk to them now just because they're dying doesn't mean they're different right right so mm -hmm. just try and even when they're at a stage where they might not be you know speaking and things like that but just keeping you know who they were like alive there was one 
um, person that we recently had that he always had a pen in his pocket. Mm-hmm. And it just happens that the shirts that we use at the hospice have pockets in the, on the chest. And so we always kept a pen in his pocket. Because that was his yeah. his dignity. And I read his obituary last night, and it was very much like with a pen in his pocket. Mm-hmm. He peacefully died mm-hmm. at Hell House. So it's just like little things of like keeping those memories alive and having the music they yeah. like. Yeah, mm-hmm. music they like. And you think that like people will be like, oh, like, you know, these extravagant things that have happened. And yes, we've had, you know, like we've had weddings. We've had, you know, large birthday parties. But there's also little tiny things like, mm-hmm. you know, someone's so excited that they can have a grilled cheese because they've been told for so long they can't have sodium. Yeah. They can't have salt. They oh. have to stay away from it. <laughs> and then when you give them that option and that's the only thing they talked about that day mm-hmm. is how good that grilled cheese was. Yeah. But it's just the little things, too. Mm-hmm. So when when you're working in a hospice, though, um, you're you're have this attitude you have this outlook that you obviously had before you even got there and this really aligned with you but when you're sitting there working day to day um there's got to be such such a uh like a a large amount of sadness through the people that come through they're not particularly the people that are maybe even dying but the people that are coming to visit them their friends and their family and there's a sadness around them um or is it, first of all, is that even true, <laughs> right? Like that the, usually people approach death and end of life with the sadness, mm. right? Um, is, that, is that what you see generally? I mean. Everyone's different, but it is something that we do see, right? Like it's kind of ha- like death has this, you know, it's been kind of like something to be feared, something yeah. that's really sad. Right. Um, the loss of it, a loved one. Yeah, but right. it doesn't have to be sad. So we do have people that come like are that are very sad, very emotional. Um, but we talk through things, mm-hmm. even little things of like talking about who that person was to them, and you know different memories that they have, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of turning turning it into like concentrating on living and the life that they lived, um, and that they're living right now. Like, how can we make this the best quality still, even though someone is dying? So as the staff, like we kind of tried to change thinking to, you know, we're concentrating on living, like they're still here. Um, so we're gonna just make this the best day that we can. Um, but sometimes uh, there's other people that have been, you know, very open with mm-hmm. their health struggles, with their family, with the plans that they've made uh, for the future and when they die or when they're dying. And I find that those families are the ones that, you know, they've already had tough conversations they've already talked about everything and those are the ones that are the most present for that person just being by their side and being their emotional support and you know the stories that they tell us about you know different things they did you know years ago and how much you learn about them and and yeah like there's crying that's okay. Crying so is normal. anger too, yeah. right? Yeah. Sometimes there's anger. Yeah. Um, a whole lot of emotions come out at that point. But it's just something that, like, we embrace it all. Yeah. So, like, in hearing you speak about that, like, what I think about is, in the, the people that I've worked with, or just even my own experience with that, um, like, I know with a friend of mine, she knew that she was dying, and it was, we, we actually knew that the timeline that was happening, and... Um, 
and just having those conversations, particularly with children, I've noticed too. Mm-hmm. Children have set, they're so intuitive, first of all. <laughs> they know what's up, even if you don't tell them <laughs> most of the time. Um, but just what have you noticed with families that have gone through um, this capacity to have these conversations? Because what I've witnessed for myself and with families I've supported is your capacity when you when the death does occur it's still devastating and it's still because it, it's occurred it's finite but there's almost this um but the denial isn't there as much and because the denial loop and the anger loop can happen a lot there so I, I know for myself in particular it's helped ease the grief process with this kind of work before the death like have you noticed that for yourselves in the work you're doing with Fannin? I think like when you've had those conversations before the death actually occurs, when you know like someone's wishes, what they want, there's a lot less stress. Yeah. Because people are okay with the decisions that they've made because they've made it on their behalf. They've had these conversations of what kind of care they would like or where would the, they like that care at the end of their life. And it's just no stress. Like they don't have that, you know, Po- like possible guilt feeling like did I do the right thing right am I sure this was the right like you know the right decision to make there isn't that so it almost like lightens everything because they don't have that stress of like okay like did I do everything that they would want me to do mm-hmm. you know there's a saying um what's that saying don't be sad that it's over be happy, grateful that it happened happy they were grateful that it happened so, it, it, you know, they say that, but still in that time, right? I mean, at the end of the day, there are all these, what I'm wondering about is there are all these emotions f- flying around. And you obviously, the two of you have known, we've worked together for some time a little bit, but, you know, you have this way of being able to channel it, right? To manage your emotions because you're very much, you're trained, first of all, <laughs> you're professionals at what you do. And you've got experience, so over time. So for you've seen this happen time and time and time again. So you know what to expect, you know, if this happens, right? You've been through it. But for many people, right, what they're going through, they don't go through as often or maybe even going through it for the, you know, mm-hmm. first time. So with all of these unregulated, all this emotions flying around, does that, do you feel like any of that on you while you're there working? Well, 100%. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and some sometimes it's harder than other times, right? Yeah. But you remember that, or it's like we're there for them and what a privilege it is to be there for the families and to be there for the residents. And so our, we have to be the strong ones. We have to be the ones to be supportive. And so uh, it's whatever emotions are there. And it's not like we, we, we do feel them. Do you we feel them get, you feel 150%. Like yeah. Um, mm. but that, and then that's kind of the beauty about being human beings together is that we can experience this a small glimpse into what this experience is like for them um, and what a privilege to be able to to be there for them and just do whatever we can to make those moments um, as special or as memorable or as honorable as they as they can be and so um i mean this might be hard to talk about but i hope you're okay just i'm just because i'm just curious um it it you know after some days, and I'm, like you said, some days are going to be easier or harder than other days. Um, what's a what's a really tough day look like? Like when when's it like really tough? I think for myself, like I 
like compartmentalize everything. Yeah. So it really helps me. But I mean, you have, you know, there are like we we talk about like these good experiences that we have because we want to dwell on those rather than the ones of sadness and, sure. and grief and fear and things like that. But they do happen. Right. So there are situations where we have residents that, you know, might have children the same age as, yeah. you know, the nurse has the same age as children as they do. You know, like I've been like screamed at by a 14 year old to do something for her mom, like the moment she died. And you just stand there because they need an outlet for their emotions too. And for myself, I'd rather it be me than someone they're closer to. Mm -hmm. um, there are days where, you know, we as a group like to talk through everything. So if there has been like a, you know, an, you know, all the deaths are expected, but sometimes they come a lot faster than we mm -hmm. expected. They might have had some kind of event or something like that. Um, so it's coming together and like immediately on the phone with the staff to see how they're doing. Yeah. You know, immediately someone else will go to the, the hospice to make sure that not only a family is doing okay, but the staff is, but the staff is yeah. too. Miranda's so good at that. Like <laughs> she is so in tune and her finger on the pulse with the team. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, you get closer to some families than other mm -hmm. families. So if there is a more unexpected death per se, mm -hmm. like, Amanda's the first one on the phone, checking in with everybody, because um, you're extremely empathetic. Like, you feel what they're feeling. Uh, and Dr. Berger, our medical director, like, there's a case recently where he's like, okay, I'm, I'm heading yeah. to the hospice yeah. right now. He, he actually, like, asked, should I go? I'm like, I don't even have to say anything. I know you left your house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. You know he's on his way to make yeah. sure. And you hear it in the staff's voices. Yeah. And they cry, and that's okay. Totally. You know, just to be that reassurance that, like, everything... You well, did you're carrying people's emotions. The mm -hmm. thing with empathy is you 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 embody it, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's the, the like at the beginning when you said that it fills up with gold. <laughs> when you when you mm -hmm. engage in empathy, you fill up with the emotion of the other, and so it's really important to tune into that because the act of compassion is the embodiment of empathy, seeking solutions, and so that's what you do when you offer different pathways for families. But when it comes to the staff, I think that check in is so important because. It could be sometimes the most innocuous thing that, like you were mentioning, like kids the same age, or mm -hmm. you just, if you just identify one thing in your own lived experience, it can be the smallest detail, that death or that experience just amplifies for yourself because you have that kind of, that shared perspective. Sometimes that it come, takes you out of your dissociative box that you mm -hmm. put yourself yeah. in to be able to do that work. So... I think that's so great that you guys support your staff that way because you're in, it's a high burnout, I would imagine. I don't know what the statistics are or anything for, but it's, I can imagine compassion fitigue being an incredible thing for. Um, Is there such a thing? Like, do you. For lack of a better word, but yes. <laughs> you just said it, right? I know, but I, I don't like the title of it, right? It's I, such a. I never feel like I have compassion no. fatigue. I feel like. Like being compassionate towards others actually gives me purpose. Yeah. So then it, like, you know, it really helps me. Yeah. 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 You but don't I, feel like you're spending anything. No. No. Well, no. It's it's hard to explain, like, how that. But I think it's because you have a nurturing just, relationship with your staff. Because I think if you didn't have that supportive network, then if you're doing that work and you don't have the support of staff, mm -hmm. then it kind of almost feels like you're working in a silo. So then you, you do exhaust yourself because you guys support yeah. each other. Yes. So that 
And you have to like count on them and everyone to be very honest. Yes. Yeah. Like we, I've had people come and they'd be like, this reminds me of this. Right. Um, you know, so giving them the opportunity to take a step back. And most of them don't, but then it just means that they've shared that with you. So, you know, you know, to be extra vigilant and checking Keep in with them. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, we always like, we talked about this so many times. Like if everyone just said like what they were thinking and like, just to be honest with everyone, it would be so much easier. Like just get it on the table. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, like if they didn't do that, it'd be a lot harder, but you know, you can, you can tell things are different. Like you can tell like someone's not smiling as much or that you can tell like, you know, the stress in their voice if you get a call about certain situations. And you can even see the thought processes different. Like if they're in a situation that, you know, triggers a memory of theirs or something like that they don't think through the situation as much as they would mm. another situation that you're like okay we just had this like what's blocking you from right. doing this in this situation where's the disconnect um, yeah because you you see it in the decisions yeah. that they well, make. it's trauma-informed right like it's being aware of what we bring to the table and why and it's not always <laughs> it's not logical it's emotional <laughs> right yeah so um, there's a lot of I love that you have that for your staff too because like that vulnerability it's it's very raw but that's their strength the strength comes from that for mm -hmm. I would I would always imagine though if um, and as an outsider kind of looking in trying to understand it you know you talked about the importance uh, or you know how how elderly are treated yeah. and how people are valued and how the life <laughs> is valued towards the the end of you mm -hmm. know it's it's existence or its presence um what, what like after seeing it so many times it doesn't sound logical right like why but why do you think that happens oh i'm thinking <laughs> i might be too blunt because we're so self-absorbed as a society oh my gosh yeah. how are we not taking care of our elderly yeah. care yeah, of our parents our grandparents the people that have created this world that we created part of the world that we live in in whatever form and that um how can we not show respect mm -hmm. to those that have come before us it just boggles my mind mm -hmm. because we're just i don't know what we're constantly after as human beings a, a larger car mm -hmm. uh, you know yeah. just sometimes caught up in our own world and you know people are inherently beautiful and good and have so much goodness uh, and so it's just how do we tap into that more in order to showcase like how much better we would all be as society if we actually yeah. took care of everyone yeah, yeah. like in that beyond the spectrum of yeah. our elders, but I mean, look at those that are homeless, that don't have a place over their head because of, you know, a circumstance that it's usually is out of their control. Or something, not yeah, a family, yeah, like, it's something, yeah, it's not, it's not uh, usually something to their quote unquote fault, for yeah, lack of a yeah. better word, right? So yeah. I think it's also like how society views aging in general too. Mm -hmm. It's something that, you know, it's almost like a defect, like, you're getting older, you know, you got to do everything you can to look younger. Um, you know, it's it's almost like that's not good. You know, aging is a natural part of like yeah. the process of every living creature. But yet we put so much emphasis on stop the aging um, that people almost make it seem like 
It's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're young, it's hurry up and grow up. Yeah. Yeah. Hurry yeah. Up and stay young. Yeah. 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 Like, which one is it? We were talking out there about, yeah. the, or out there just about this, about like the amount of, you know, what's in magazines and what's portrayed as beauty. There should be like beautiful souls calendar 2023 that shows. <laughs> yeah. Like, beautiful. Really real life. Like, the lines are beautiful. Yeah. They're add so much character uh, in somebody's face, but yet like, Let's fill it with Botox or... Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway. That's yeah. That's true, though. <laughs> no, but then it's like, and it's you know, the value is. Right? And even the way that things used to be, like multi-generational homes, like you don't see yeah. it as much as you used to, right? Yeah. The younger generation is not growing up with the older generation. I find that interesting that you mentioned that. They're like yeah. segregated. Yeah. They have their own homes. Yeah. And so it's very much like they don't see that. Like younger generations don't see... And also different, like, parts of our society, too. Like, I remember in education, um, I I served a community where there was a lot of intergenerational families. And, um, you know, so you'd have three, sometimes four generations in one home. And I remember in these meetings, they'd be like, oh, yeah, it's one of those large households. They they, they spoke negatively of it. You mean amongst staff? Yeah, yeah, meetings, meetings when we're discussing, like, say if there was an issue with a like a, a child had an educational issue or behavior concern and how to support the child. Got it. You'd have a context conversation of the larger community or of the larger family. And that would ca- sometimes come up and it was often spoke very negatively. Like it was this multi-gender and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, well, what's the problem with that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Cause yeah. I came up from that. Like, and I lived in my grandparents' house for a long time. My great-grandparents, I knew them. They had like a little area off to the, like a, like a small house attached to the house, a little area off to the side and stuff. So, and it was just interesting because that was said in a, a cultural context because these were a new immigrant families primarily, right? So it was taken from that lens. But I'm like, I'm Canadian. We live like that <laughs> too. And it's not a bad thing. It's... And it's and also there's I've what I've experienced too is like there's so much beauty in it too right there's so much beauty in like learning through the different generations and how they do things and the wealth of stories and I just love like the stories that. the stories are amazing <laughs> I remember my time with my grandfather and I <clears throat> cherish it right because we we got to I just loved the stories I could listen yeah. to the stories all day long about them yeah and um, I, I I didn't understand what the big issue was with with being around. Um, elderly, but you y- you say that 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 um, that there's that this seems like there's this general perspective of not valuing um, a person or life. Let's just say not even a person, but life itself as it kind of near nears its end, almost like um, a mechanical object, right? As it as it nears its end of its use, it gets, you know, it's whatever. It could be a yeah. camera. It could be anything. It's we actually say like it's dead. Throw it away. Yeah. yeah. Like throw it away. Yeah. Like, it, has it. No, <laughs> it has no value. It's just like um, an object rather than um, the person. And uh, it's funny. Like even in, uh, for example, in 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 the workplace, um, you know, when a person uh, is no longer in that in that in that space anymore in that role, you know, I always say like you can fill a role, but you can't replace the person. Mm-hmm. It's the person themselves. So it's interesting that you you point at almost like um, how society over time, and and you just were referring to the difference between Kenya and maybe here, but I don't think it's a 
I don't know if it's a Western thing. I don't I don't know if it is a Western thing or not, but um, the the devaluation, <laughs> right, or the dehumanization mm-hmm. of our own selves, of our own society. Because if we're doing it generally out there, we're also doing it to ourselves in a way. Are we? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting. Nobody would say that they want to devalue themselves, yet that's what happens. Yeah. Um, and if 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 you say if you say if you can say that, then I'm always always trying to understand like what the the you know the, the cause underneath of that is, right? So why is it that you think, um, and you see it because at the end of life, right? And now you're having the conversations with the people themselves who are at end of life. Mm-hmm. These are the same people who at another point were young and mm-hmm. may have been part of the same call it system. So when they get to their end of life, nobody wants to be devalued at that point either. And you get you get this sense from them that look. We are devalued. We feel this way, and we are we have plenty of value in us, and they want that value. Is what are you hearing at that point in time in terms of how they wish to be treated? I think for for us a lot, like we see people who are at the very end of their life, so it's yeah. like less than a month prognosis. Yeah. Um, for us, there's not that like necessarily like. De- so they might not express their like devaluing, but we see it in the way of like what supports they received before they came to us. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. We see it in the way of like not having the support at home all the time, um, not you know having a shortage of you know, nursing and and personal support workers to help with the care at home. But we also see it in the fact that like someone will come in and um, they'll have like a gentleman will have a full beard. And in talking to the family, this is not something that they ever had. They were just in the hospital for that long. No and, you know, no one shaved them. So one of the, like, greatest joys we get is to, you know, turn that person back to who they were. Hmm. And even, like, physical appearance as well. And the family coming in and seeing, like, oh, my, like, that's my dad. Yeah. Like, that's what he looks like. Like, that's, yeah. but, you Like know. Michelle was saying with the fingernails, right? Yeah. Just these, yep. you know, these personal... Like just we take advantage mm-hmm. of the simple things, right? Yeah. So just like valuing them still as, you know, who they were. You know, even doing little things like we had someone who had no family. Like we were honestly her family. Um, there was other families at the hospice that kind of got word that she had no family and they became her family. But even little things like she was very possessive over some of her possessions. And even when she was unconscious, we still kept them in her hand. Yeah, You know, things like that, just to value what they valued um, before. Mm-hmm. But definitely, like, in the supports that people get, it's very obvious that the healthcare system doesn't prioritize, you know, aging and, and dying. It's wild. It's it crazy. Like where all of our services are, the care and comfort that's provided at hospice is free. There's no charge to families. But yet we are open because of the generosity of the community. Mm-hmm. So the community provides 50% of all of our funding to keep in operation, the other 50 from the Ministry of Health. But how is it that way? It, uh, you know, it you, really boggles. Yeah. <laughs> you see, like, yeah. where the priority is. Yeah. Um, you know, as a society, it's like death is something that's looked at as, like, an opponent. Like, you have to combat it. You have to battle it. We see it even in the language we use. If you read, like, obituaries, it's like, well, after a short battle yeah. with cancer, after a so, like um, you know yeah. long fight with this yeah. or a struggle with this, 
it's in the language we use and but yet it's inevitable it's a part of who we are we are going to die it's part of life but the way we talk about it is like a very negative thing that we have to try to combat and we have to try to stall at all costs but really if we just came to terms with that this is the reality that you know i'm going to die one day someone else in my life is going to die one day you know the benefit of that is the appreciation for the life you have now mm-hmm. and you know to choose the way you want to live and to appreciate the small moments whatever they are um, but we we talk about it so negatively and then we don't talk about it all, at all mm-hmm. which gives it like more power because we're not talking about it. Yeah, people are too scared to yeah. many times, right? So how do, you, how do you talk about death not negatively? <laughs> I think, like, from a young age, yeah. right? So, like, for myself, um, you know, I grew up in a household that, you know, people died, animals died, and it wasn't something that we shied away from. Mm-hmm. You know, we went to funerals as children. Yeah. You know, if we were scared, it would be one of those situations where like a parent would come with us to go see someone, it might have been like an open casket, to show us that there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, we visited people that were in the hospital um, that we knew that they were dying. Mm-hmm. Um, there was like, as children, always a hope that, you know, they would be well again. But it's not something that, like, we shied away from at all. So for me, it was, it's easy to talk about. Like, there's no, like, negativity. This is what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, Where now I find, you know, a lot of people are, like, don't want to expose people to that. Even children, like, they can, they know what's happening. They know. (laughs) They're very intuitive. They know what's happening. And what they don't know they're going to make up themselves and it's usually a lot worse than what the actual reality of the situation is so you know it's okay for kids to you know see someone who is dying um it's okay for that to be you know but now i find like even little things like someone's pet dies and the first thing is like oh we better buy another one that looks exactly the same Mm -hmm. you know but like why are we doing that yeah because it's very much you know, it's we natural. That pet. Yeah. It's natural. So why are we hiding this natural, like, life transition? We celebrate all the other ones. We prepare for all the other ones. But why aren't we preparing for dying? It's hard to face sadness, yeah. right? Like, it's hard. Like, it's easier for us. And not that I'm saying, like, like, it is important to face it. Like, when I talk about end of life or death with, like, say, my mom or something, it's very different than us having a conversation about it because you love that person so much. So it's hard to find, like, after that conversation, like, do you find that you're closer to that person? Well, yeah. And that's what I mean. You draw strength from from looking at and facing that. So it does vulnerability. And then then you all feel better after the conversation because then we know we're more open, we're vulnerable with each other, we we can face it together. You're not creating, like you said, the story in your head, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's just, I mean, it's just natural. So why are, why are we not talking about it? You're just so strong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, even, even in my life, it's very much like people don't understand. Like, yeah. you know, after getting married, like I knew at that time exactly what my husband's wishes were. He was in his you know, early 30s, and I knew exactly, you know, if something were to happen, mm-hmm. what, what, what to do. Um, and those change over time, yeah. right? So, you know, we revisited it. I find it, like, 
liberating a little bit to talk about it? I I I enjoy talking about it. I don't know what it is, but like, it's, it's like no, it's yeah. out and open. And yeah. there, you talked yeah. about being yeah. honest about it, mm-hmm. and it's almost like this uh, this weight lifted off your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Do you ever do you feel that way as well? Like but yeah, and then there's no uncertainty or fear. Like say, so then somebody you love is facing end of life. You don't have to have those questions in a moment of mm-hmm. of trauma or in a moment of sadness, mm-hmm. or you already know how I can best respect and love this person in their final moments because you've already had that conversation ten years ago. Yeah. So you already when's know the right time to start talking about something like today. Always, always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yesterday, yesterday. Yeah. You know, it, but you know what? Like, there's little things that people will say that are actually like, if you read into them, you're like, actually, that like. How many times have you heard an older person say, like, I'm not going to be around forever? But yet we're like, oh, don't worry don't about say that. that. Like, yeah, yeah, it's all yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But really, you could be like, is that something you think about? Like, yeah. Like, tell me. About are, that. Yeah. Tell me about that. Like, what are your thoughts around, you know, what's happening yeah. to you? You know, but we tend to shy away from those because mm-hmm. it's very like an emotive subject. Right. Yeah. Like it brings up a lot of emotions. A lot of the time, like, you know, sadness and things like that, or, you know, memories of, like, other issues. But if we don't, we just kind of hold it all in. Mm -hmm. And then when we need to talk about it, it's like, instead of spending the last final moments you have with someone, we're trying to have all these conversations Mm -hmm. about, you know, that could have been resolved. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, too. Like, when you're, I was listening to you, you're really brought up, who is it, Dr. Dan Segal, he was he popularized the term name it to tame or tame it to name it mm-hmm. with within neuroscience. It was I think it was it was Hebb in the forties kind of coined or did the initial research on it about synaptic connections in the brain. But that's how you are able to move through things if you name it to tame it and be able to identify things mm-hmm. and and um, it just makes things a lot more manageable when we can name it and then you have an entry point for a constructive conversation or a compassionate conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's such a, it's such a um, taboo topic, for lack of a better word. I yes, think. taboo, that's yeah. the word. So do you notice in, ta- in hearing these conversations that you notice that people are now having to c- get through at that moment, do you notice there to be a, a general pattern in the kind of things that generally they're trying to work out in the last minute that they could have talked about a long time ago. What are the most common things that people end up talking about or thinking about? I think for us being very end of life is like how to celebrate this person's life or how like even things like funeral arrangements and, you know, where, like where they should go or what kind of, you know, they never ask them like, you know, would you, do you want to be cremated or like, you know, just these conversations as well. So it's, it takes away from the moment, like being in the moment with them to more of a, like, we have to get, you know, A, B and C done. Um, but for us, I think it's a lot to do with like the very, cause by the time they come to hospice, I mean, there's always been, there's already been a decision that, you know, it's going to be comfort care. There's not going to be any resuscitation and things like that. But I mean, those have been figured out maybe just at the hospital like and i find even like health care workers they don't like to bring it up either right so we've had people call the hospice and been like 
you know, my dad's in the hospital. They keep on running tests. Yes. We don't want this. Like he, like he wouldn't want this. We just want comfort care. Yeah. And it takes the family to bring it up to the care team. And then it's almost like a sigh of relief. Yeah. For like everyone. Well, like mm. if you just brought this up at the beginning, yeah, you know, we wouldn't have this like struggle. I even think about that in the medical. I remember yeah. my, you just made me think of when my mother-in-law passed away, and she knew she was dying. She was like, "Trina, straight up, I'm dying. <laughs> like this is happening." Mm. And she'd send me off to like do all these things because she had like codes and keys <laughs> and things stashed places, <laughs> and you know, just you know, people are cool and they do they do stuff, right? And I remember. Um, she knew she was full of cancer, so the oncologist comes in, and, and she was in ICU at this point, and they're like, well, when she gets stabilized, we'll start with chemo and radiation, and and she was nonverbal at this point a, a little bit, and uh, I just looked at her, and I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, mm-hmm. why are you talking about um, radiation and chemotherapy when she gets stable? I said... She keeps going down, and she's been telling everyone she's dying. So why is she feeling this? And or about this whole thing to try and preserve life? But well, that's that was he. And then so what it was is that they they were so siloed. He's like, well, I'm just the oncologist. And then, but no one was coming in and telling this family that she was going to pass away, and she knew it, and they knew it. And I just saw the damage it did for my husband at the time and the family because you know they're like Trina stop saying she's dying I'm like she's telling me and it's okay like you need to talk about these things this is like this is I felt it was an opportunity to kind of have conversations and stuff but yeah these were medical professionals and they could not say she was dying and within 12 hours of the oncologist being there she passed away and so it was just but yet if you like knew that before you can like plan different things of like you know how you want your last days to be right like who you want to talk to like usually at the time someone's dying it's like you know they you know want to you know say thank you to someone or you know even ask for forgiveness about something right you don't have that yeah you know you don't have that preparation to and that's what she had me do she'd get these list of groceries for my parents do this for my sister this is what like all of these things. Do you think, though, yeah. some part of society might feel, I mean, just playing the advocate for the other side here, is that you don't want to talk about it because it sounds like you're giving up. But, yeah. I, yeah. but I think it's changing the definition of mm-hmm. what hope means. Because right. okay. I think from a medical institutional perspective, there's always like, there's hope we can try this other therapy. There's hope. Let's try this experimental drug. There's This is hope. Right. Whereas... Let's change what that is and let's hope for like the most amazing end of life experience possible. And what does that look like to that person? And maybe it is taking every experimental drug, but maybe if we really just stop and listen to the person, maybe it is like withdrawing treatment and spending time with family or doing want. that. Yeah. 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 So yeah. it's like, right? like that could be hope. Time. Yeah. 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 It, it changes throughout like the course of everything, right? Like if, when someone's first diagnosed, it might be the hope for a cure. Right. And then when that's not, you know, that's not feasible, then it's a hope for something else. Maybe there's an occasion that's coming up, like mm-hmm. a grand grandchildren's like wedding. Right. And then there's a hope to live to that or there's, right. you know, a hope to you know, not have pain, 
Right. You know, the hope changes mm. um, throughout, and there's always ways to find hope mm-hmm. in situations. It just changes. The direction of it changes, mm-hmm. and the definition of it to someone changes. But there's always hope. And then hope for, like, you know, a legacy. Hope that people will remember you. Um, and instead of, you know, trying to figure out what that person wants, just to have those, like, you know, things that you can do, like mm-hmm. talking to someone, you know, listening to someone's story gives them the hope that they will be remembered, right? Like, there's always different types of hope, and it changes. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be the same. And throughout our whole life, it changes, really, what we hope for or what brings us hope or things like that. What are the things that people hope for in the end? I think for us, just a very peaceful death. Yeah. Um, a lot of, you know, people who come to hospice, um, a lot of them struggle with their symptoms that they're having, and they need that 24-hour support with the symptoms that they're having. So a lot of times it is like hope for making sure they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be a hope that like you'll have a certain person by your side when you die. Um, you know, it changes. So um, thank you for for sharing that. I mean, what, um, in, in obviously working at the hospice, you would say has, has had an impact on you personally in your own, or would you say it, it's had an impact on how you view end of life and how you've then in turn lived life, would you say? For sure, like in turn living life, like life appreciating everything you have. You know, I'm not one to be like very materialistic. Like I don't need these things because you see at the end of life, like you you're not you're not bringing those things. Like yeah. you don't need that. Mm-hmm. So definitely, just like living simply, and you know, strengthening your relationships. Um, you know, visiting people like now before it's too late. Like we tend to have an influx of people come at the very end of life. And we had we had some a resident who said, like, you know, we told them your uncle's coming to visit and the look on their face to be like, why? Yeah. Like they weren't there for me all these years. Like why now that he's doing it for himself, mm-hmm. not for me, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's hard for people, eh? Yeah, yeah. So it's just like taking the opportunity to live now while you have the time. And how can, um, I mean, the work that hospices do, I mean, it's, look at that, I mean, it's amazing, right? Um, the, f- the, the focus on, on hope, the focus on, you know, comfort, the, the focus on the value of life. Isn't it ironic? It's at the hospice yeah. that they value life <laughs> the most. Uh, I love that about, you know, hospices and the one that I know here in my favorite <laughs> there, I said. He set the bar yeah. high. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, what what could um, what could others who are not you know connected to a hospice who never heard of it? What things could um, could could we do who are from outside? How can we support? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think just having conversations, talking about it, talking about hospice, talking about end of life. um, uh, Because although, you know, we love Hill House Hospice, it's about hospice, it's about families, it's about end of life. And so it's really about starting those conversations with your family, with your friends, and um, having more awareness about what really hospice is. 
Uh, I remember one, I know I'm diverging into a, a, a funny topic, but I remember one call that I made to a, a banking okay. partner and so was saying, oh, yeah, from Hill House Hospice. And so they're like, oh, hospice. Oh, you must serve like really spicy foods there. Oh, hot it's like, spice. oh, wow. No, no, no. Hospice. <laughs> wow. But just yeah. so I think really uh, having a greater awareness in our community about hospice, about Hill House Hospice, about what opportunities are there for families um, and for those facing end of life. What other services do you have at Hill House? Just so I'm aware, I'm not aware of what everything. I know the ones in the region where I've practiced, because everyone's a little bit different. So what do you, what's the spectrum? I know you have in-house, obviously, hospice care, but in terms of familial extensions, do you have any programs like that for families or support groups or things like that? Or do you just kind of do that individually, like have, have your staff work with families as they come in? So we're like Hill House is a residential hospice. So we, you know, we have three bedrooms. We take care of people at the very end of their life. While the families are there, we take care of them as well. Um, You know, even making sure they're fed and things like that because they tend to forget. Yes. Um, But we do partner with like other community services for things like grief and bereavement Mm -hmm. and things like that. It's not something that we've taken on right now. you know, but there's always like. But you have those community collaborations yeah. and connections. Yeah. So yeah. someone called the other day, and I was able to like let them know like what community hospice um, can help in certain situations. But we do call like residents, families. Um, you know, after a little while, we do call them to see how you know how they're doing. Nice. Um, as as people are, you talked about things that people can talk about. Um, right to to have these conversations if people are hesitant don't know where to start you know don't know how to approach it because you got to remember you you've done this you've seen mm-hmm. it for so long you're a pro right it's just like commonplace right. yeah like, commonplace. It's like how do you not know this, how do you not know this? right exactly yeah. right um for those that are that are finding it uncomfortable or who find it a little awkward right to to start having this conversation um, what's what's your advice? Uh, how how can we? Where can we start? What sort of areas? Kind of make it like you know, easier grounds to shallower waters to 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 step into. I think sometimes there is no easy answer. Like so, if you're dealing with your own family, or great. We're just not like going to start then. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I like, just I just start. have to be like, this is going to be difficult, but yeah. this is what I want to talk about because oh. I think it'll help the both of us. Um, and it'll like you know create less fear. If like it's I just, ask my son what's what's on his you know what what he's what his test is coming up, and he's like, can we not talk about this right now? Uh, okay, like okay, when are we going to talk about this? If we're not going to yeah. talk about this mm-hmm. now, we'll talk about this. You know, we push things off. Yeah, we don't want to talk about something that's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. And you can't force those people to talk mm-hmm. about it, right? right? I think so. Dory books like, have been helpful because. It's about finding the words because people don't have the mm-hmm. words. Even though there's simple words like I am dying, you are going to die, and, and the, these, this is the vernacular, but mm-hmm. saying that is so hard. So I find sometimes storybooks have been helpful to kind of start that conversation, at least in my experience. I don't know if if you've ever had that with your families at all. or Usually by the time they're with the, Yeah, you get them like, when they're already yeah. at the very end. Yeah. yeah. Although there are, like, you know, there is a lot of, you know, there can be denial. It's usually yeah. for the younger residents with their families and, you know, having a lot of denial and don't want to talk about that. And, 
you know, they see changes in the person. They they see different changes at end of life. And it's just like having a conversation to teach them what's coming next. Um, but definitely, like, there are some people that don't want to talk about it. And you mm-hmm. can't force that. No. And so you Sounds just, like most people don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. But so you're just there to... Understanding that talking about it actually makes it better, not yeah. worse. Yeah. And yeah. not talking about it makes it worse, not better. Mm-hmm. So how could we kind of bridge that gap is what I'm trying to figure out. You know, how can we take those first steps or where can we find those first steps? And I, I like how you said it. It's not necessarily easy. We're always looking, mm-hmm. we're always looking for how to or make it easy or dummies, something yeah. for dummies, right? But, you know, yeah, hospice for dummies. Maybe it's like, <laughs> but it's your things first we're coming up with today. <laughs> hospice for dummies. Like if there was such a thing, um, how could we make it a little bit, you know, easier to transition that conversation or what's close enough? This Maybe there's nothing. I think it just starts with one conversation. Yeah. Like everything that's fearful, everything that... It, this might be awkward. This might not feel good in the moment or I'm not unsure about it. It's like, well, let's just try it. We're not going to know unless we try. So let's just start with one conversation about it with mm-hmm. somebody that maybe we're close to or maybe somebody that we're not because maybe that would be less fearful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then going from there, do it once and then, okay, maybe I can do it. Oh, I, wow, I felt good after that conversation. Right. Yeah, And the then thing. it's like, oh, okay, let me try another conversation a little bit longer this time or more in depth or talk to somebody about what I want for end of life. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think it just all starts with just a conversation. I think what you said was like, you like know, talking. Yeah. yeah, and it could be to someone, like you said, like maybe you don't know them as much. Maybe the person that, you know, you want to talk about death with doesn't want to talk about it with you. Right. Because you're too close to them. But maybe they'll talk about it with someone else who they don't have that close relationship. They don't have that filter either, yeah. right, of worrying yeah. about hurting someone's feelings or... I got a podcast idea for you now. <laughs> well, can you imagine if you started actually having these conversations openly? And mm-hmm. wouldn't that wouldn't that make life like you you're you're imagining right now? Yeah, close, yeah. Right? sorry, yeah. so much better for so many yeah. people. Right. Yeah. Um and, and, they have, and those are ways. They have groups too, right? So a lot of people don't know like it's a newer concept. Do you ever heard of like a death cafe? No. So a death cafe is something that they kind of introduced in the UK. Um, I think in like 2010 or 2011. And it's just like a group of like-minded people who want to talk about death and dying. There's no necessary like agenda or themes or anything. It's just, you don't know what will happen. You're just going to have a conversation and it's going to be about death. Then you just um, drop into this cafe? Yeah. So there's different like cafes. Actually, I'm going to attend one tomorrow night. Are you really? Yeah, it's virtual. Because oh, I just wanted to see what it was like. Because yeah. I was like, you know what? I've heard about them. So let's see. Um, so I am. Yeah. And what it is, it's just like to talk openly. If you have How questions, ask questions, you know, and it's not, you know, it's just a conversation to yeah. have with people who also want to talk about death. That makes it easy. Yeah, for sure. And the more we talk yeah. about it, the more we want to live more. Yeah. Right? You know, it's so funny you say that because I remember years ago working with a little boy who was, he's passed long now, but was dying of cancer. And his parents could barely talk. They would just break down. Un- I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't yeah. imagine. They would break down anytime they'd start to talk about it. But he would talk about it. And the more he talked about it, 
the more energized you became about, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to raise money for this. Or if I have bed days, I'm going to do this. And like, so he knew with his treatments how he would feel and, and he knew he planned what his end of life, like, um, like, um, funeral would be like a, his funeral arrangements and stuff like that. But it's so true. Children are just so amazing that way. But that's what he taught me was like, the more you talk about it and you can make it, um, Actually, it was he was joyous. That was the, and when I think mm -hmm. back of his, he was quite joyous, and I just remember everyone around him always falling apart, myself included, at certain times. And he just taught us so much about just talking and being open, and just what that invites. And um, I remember connecting with his parents a couple of times afterward, and um, the way he was helped them afterward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they couldn't tap into it when he was here because how can you yeah. but when after he passed they were like he started this with like with little projects and things he wanted to raise money for and stuff so they've now continued that as his legacy right so it just and it's actually helped the parents serve purpose so it's so amazing when we open these conversations and tap into it seems kind of counterintuitive to say the joyous side of of the end of life and how we can create different opportunities for ourselves out of that to heal and, and, and move through it because I couldn't imagine losing a child yeah. <laughs> and these parents were able to like stay together and, and persevere after that. Right. Well, pretty amazing what we're capable of. Well, I'm so glad you guys came here to join us to talk about some things we have never yeah. really talked about. So important. And to bring, to shed light on, you know, the amazing work that hospices are doing, the amazing work that you're doing, and not only how it benefits the the, um, the patrons or the people that are passing through, the residents, but to see how um, the staff who work there are, are directly impacted and how they take the impact of end of life and um and and show an impact that is so positive that is so humanizing and that is so enlightening um uh, it's funny how we discover about life and if there was things that people could could share i mean that's what i've, I've always i've always like uh thought it was it's Somebody said, like, there's nothing like death to give you, like, clarity <laughs> on something, right? And so you get clear. And I can just see from the way they're, they're talking, too, like, how, how clear you are on what you're saying. You're not having to think about it or guess. It just comes right out. And, and, and how impactful that is for you. And how you would wish that kind of clarity, right, mm -hmm. for so many people. Mm -hmm. So that it's not so that they could have a, not just a happy ending, but they could have a happy everything mm -hmm. or a better everything right yeah. um any any last last thoughts or last words to uh to leave with us on you know how our our end of life just really gives us insight into having a better life um i guess just uh, i just feel very thankful and privileged mm -hmm. to do the work that we do to work with the folks that we work with um, and that families put so much trust in us. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I think, uh, just so personally connected to Hill House, to hospice, to the care and work that goes on there, that it 
you know, um, just feel very fortunate and privileged. I'm just thankful, I guess, is is what I'd like to say. None of us are, you know, we don't do this for like the money. You know, we always like laugh about it because <laughs> hospice isn't funded properly, so we can never compete. Like, yeah, I can never compete. You're not like, yeah. none, of us, none of us are in it for the money. No yeah. one's there who doesn't want to be there because you couldn't do what you do if you don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very much, you know, not a job. The calling, really. It's not a job. I've never felt like, you know, oh my goodness, I have to go to work today. Like, I've never had that feeling. We're so lucky. Like, we're just really, really fortunate. <laughs> I just find it amazing that in a place where there's so much death, that there's so much appreciation for life itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, like, such a such a great insight to gain from you. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us today. It's super, super insightful. Thank you for having yeah. us. <laughs> yeah.